Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Kohalit Podcast. My name is Leonard, and I will be your host for this week. We are continuing through our study of systematic theology by Dr. Wayne Grudem. And this week, we're going to take a look at chapter 5, which handles the inerrancy of Scripture. This is a very, very important topic, so I am excited to jump right in. We're going to start by defining that term for us. So the inerrancy of Scripture means that Scripture in the original manuscripts does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact. So this simply means that the Bible always tells the truth and that it always tells the truth concerning everything that it talks about. Now, we know that all the words in the Bible are God's words, and we believe that God cannot lie or speak falsely. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 28 says, And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true and you have promised this good thing to your servant. In Titus chapter 1 verse 2 it says in hope of eternal law in hope of eternal life which God who never lies promised before the ages began. And then in Hebrews chapter 6 verse 18 it says so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. So all words in scripture are completely true and without error in any part. In Psalm chapter 12, verse 6, it says, The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined by a furnace, on the ground, and purified seven times. And we know that God's words are the ultimate standard of truth. Uh, John 17, 17 says, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Furthermore, we have Proverbs chapter 30, verse 5, which says, Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. So we're going to go through some of these sections now and dig in a little bit deeper and share some of the scripture and some of the commentary that Mr. Grudem uses to defend his positions here. Our first point is that the Bible can be inerrant and still speak in the ordinary language of everyday speech. So the Bible speaks of things like the sun rising. For example, Psalm 113 verse 3 says, From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. Or James chapter 1 verse 11, part of it says, For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Um, also, it talks about the rain falling in Isaiah chapter 55, verse 10, which says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but 
water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. Or Matthew chapter 7, verse 25 says, And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Now, those statements are still true because from the perspective of the speaker, that is exactly what is happening. So there are some people who might say that like, well, if you were at a fixed spot in like outer space, that rain would actually be going sideways or that since the earth rotates and that brings the sun into the view, like the sun doesn't actually rise, right? But these statements are perfectly true from the viewpoint of the speaker, of the one who's saying them. Now, another example of this idea might include things like numbers, and not the book of numbers, but like if someone said, uh, for example, that like 8,000 people died, if we found out that it was 8,001 or 7,999, we wouldn't count that person's words as false words, right? So Grudem says that the limits of truthfulness would depend on the degree of precision implied by the speaker and expected by its original hearers. Okay, so that's that's actually really important. So I'm going to say that again, that quote from Grudem. He says that the limits of truthfulness would depend on the degree of precision implied by the speaker and expected by its original hearers. So things like this actually aren't errors in the Bible. We can affirm that the Bible is absolutely truthful in everything that it says and that it, or, that it uses ordinary language to describe some natural phenomena or to give approximations or round numbers when those are appropriate in the context. See, inerrancy has to do with the truthfulness, not with the degree of precision with which events are reported. The next point here is that the Bible can be inerrant and still include loose or free quotations. So let's talk about that. Um, quoting can kind of vary from culture to culture. Now, we are really used to uh, very direct quotes, meaning like the exact words, but some cultures use quotes as more of a loose quote that gives an accurate report of the statement that was actually said. So here's kind of a little example. If I say Leonard said he'd be home right away to eat dinner, this would be a truthful statement, even though my exact words were, I will come to the house to eat in two minutes. So, even though those weren't the exact words, the information conveyed is completely accurate, right? And at the time of the New Testament writings in Greek, there were not any quotation marks or equivalent types of punctuation. So quotes were not 
always direct, but they were often indirect because they were truthful representations of what was said. So inerrancy is consistent with loose or free quotations of the Old Testament or of the words of Jesus, as long as the content is not false to what was originally stated. The last point in this section is that the Bible can still be inerrant and have unusual or uncommon grammatical construction. So when we think of a perfectly inerrant Bible, we might just assume that all of the spelling, all of the grammar, and all of the literary elements are just going to be absolutely perfect. But the Bible never claims to be perfect in stylistic things like grammar or spelling. What the Bible claims is that its statements are true. So different grammatical styles or uh, irregular statements, like uh, some that might be found in the book of Revelation, don't really need to trouble us because they do not affect the truthfulness of the statement that is under consideration. So a statement can be ungrammatical, if that's a word, or include some misspellings and still be completely true. Remember that the issue with the doctrine of inerrancy is all about truthfulness in speech, all right? So now as we move on to our next section, what we are going to do is focus on a few of the current uh, challenges or objections that might be thrown out there that have to do with the matter of inerrancy. The first objection that we want to mention and talk about is the one that says the Bible is only authoritative uh, for matters of faith and practice. So you might hear some people say this. Uh, They'll say that it's only authoritative for issues of faith, meaning like in areas directly related to our religious belief and authoritative in practice, which would be like the ethical conduct of our lives. But this gives ground for folks to say that the Bible is okay to have errors in historical details or like scientific facts, since those areas do not concern the purpose of the Bible. So people who hold this position would most likely say that the Bible is infallible, but not inerrant. And we would disagree with that. And in response to that statement, we would say that the Bible repeatedly affirms that all of Scripture is profitable for us, right? 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3, verse 16 says that, and that it's all God-breathed. That's part of that same verse. And we already read in Psalm 12, 6, that it's completely pure. We read in Psalm 119, verse 96, that it's perfect. And again, that verse, Proverbs chapter 30, verse 5, says that it's true. 
See, the Bible doesn't make any restriction on the kinds of subjects to which it speaks truthfully. So we see no reason or intention to separate matters of faith and practice. The next objection that we deal with is that the term inerrancy is a poor term. So some people might say that the term inerrancy is far too precise and that it denotes a kind of absolute scientific precision that we do not want to claim for scripture since it contains some of those things we already talked about, like the everyday speech of ordinary people, uh, round numbers, or free quotations. And furthermore, those who make this objection to inerrancy note that that term is not used in the Bible itself, and so it is inappropriate for us to use that term for the Bible. So our first response to that objection would be that the scholars, that many scholars have used that term inerrancy, and they've defined it very clearly for a hundred years and have always allowed for the limitations that attach to speech and ordinary language. And secondly, it's important to note that we often use non-biblical terms to summarize a biblical teaching. So if that's confusing, let's take, for example, the word Trinity. The word Trinity does not occur in Scripture at all, nor does the word incarnation. Yet both of these terms are helpful because they allow us to summarize in one word a true biblical concept. The third objection we'll talk about says that uh, we have no inerrant manuscripts, so therefore talk about an inerrant Bible is misleading. We have always said that inerrancy is claimed for the first or the original copies of biblical documents, yet we know that none of those survive. But we also must state that for over 99% of the words in the Bible, we know exactly what the original manuscripts said. And even for many of the verses where there are textual variants, and a textual variant means that there's like different words in uh, the same verse in different manuscripts, uh, the correct decision is usually very clear. And in fact, there's only a few places where some of those textual variants are both difficult to evaluate and even significant in determining the meaning. But in those small percentage, percentage of cases, the general sense is usually quite clear from the context of the overall passage. And also your Bible will indicate in the margins, like with notes that could say, for example, some ancient manuscripts read, and then it'll kind of tell you, or ancient authorities add. And so there are sometimes footnotes there that help explain some of those textual variants. 
So for most practical purposes, the current published scholarly text of the Hebrew Old Testament and Greek New Testament are the same as the original manuscripts. That's why we say that the original manuscripts were inerrant. We're also implying that over 99% of the words in our present manuscripts are also inerrant because they are exact copies of the originals. So we are very confident in the Bibles that we use and we read every single day. Objection number four says the biblical writers accommodated their messages in minor details to the false ideas in their current day and affirmed or taught those ideas in an incidental way. So here's what we're saying. So people who hold this position would argue that it would have been very difficult for biblical writers to communicate with the people of their time if they had tried to correct all of the false historical and scientific information that was believed by the people at that time. So they say that when the Bible writers were attempting to make a larger point, they sometimes incidentally affirmed some false ideas like scientific facts that were believed by those people. So let's kind of make a little bit more sense of this with an example. So in Matthew chapter 13, verse 32, Jesus says that the mustard seed is the smallest of all seeds. So we could say that the mustard seed really isn't the smallest of all the seeds in the world. Yet Jesus referred to it as such because to the Jewish mind of the people of that day, the mustard seed was the smallest thing that I could see. So if Jesus was actually to be very precise and tell us the real smallest seed in all of the world, it would have made him lose that point to his audience. So that's kind of their case. And to this objection, we would first say that God is Lord of human language and can use human language to communicate perfectly without having to affirm any false ideas that may have been held during uh, the people of that time writing the scripture. And we could also say that any accommodation by God to our misunderstandings would also imply that he acted contrary to his character as the God who never lies. Again, you might remember some of those uh, scriptures that we referenced earlier, uh, like in Titus chapter 1, verse 2, or Numbers chapter uh, 23, verse 19, or Hebrews verse uh, chapter 6, verse 18. Now, we do know that God does condescend to speak our language, right? The language of human beings. But no passage of scripture teaches that he condescends so as to act contrary to his moral character. 
as the God who cannot lie. So this objection to inerrancy really misunderstands like the purity and the unity of God as they affect all of his words and deeds. One really important principle of biblical interpretation is that we should understand words to mean what the original hearers and readers would have taken them to mean at the time and in that culture. So when Jesus spoke of seeds, they would not have understood him to be speaking um, all about all the hundreds of thousands of kinds of botanical seeds that might someday be found in all the plants of the earth, right? They would rather have understood him to be speaking about agricultural seeds, the seeds which they would plant in the earth to grow crops. And lastly, we would say that if if we affirm these kinds of uh, accommodations that affirm things that were false could be put in simply to communicate better, this really would create a very serious moral problem for us. See, we are to be imitators of God's moral character. We hear that in uh, Leviticus chapter 11, verse 44, or Luke chapter 6, verse 36, or Ephesians 5, 1, or First um, Peter 5, chapter 1. So if the accommodation theory is correct, then God intentionally made incidental affirmations of falsehood in order to enhance communication. And if that is the case, then we would say that it also should be right for us to intentionally make the same incidental affirmations of falsehood when we get the chance to communicate. So I would kind of say this is like... um, what we could describe as like a white lie, right? Which that position is clearly contradicted by scripture in many of the passages that we stated above, because we believe that God does not lie and cannot lie. Objection number five says that inerrancy overemphasizes the divine aspect of scripture and neglects the human aspect. Now we do agree that scripture has both a human and a divine aspect to it, but we could respond to this objection that the Bible is fully human in that it was written by human beings using their own human language, right? But the activity of God in overseeing the writing of Scripture and causing it to also be His words means that it is different than other human writing in precisely the aspect that it does not include 
error. In fact, this is the point that's uh, made even by a sinful, greedy, and disobedient Balaam in uh, Numbers chapter 23, verse 19. See, God's speech through sinful human beings is different from the ordinary speech of men because God is not a man that he should lie. And now we finish this section with the sixth and final objection that just says there are some clear errors in the Bible, so it's not inerrant. And in this last objection, we just kind of deal with, again, that thinking that there are some clear errors in the Bible. There are some that say that um, since errors exist, it's inerrant. And our first response to that question or to that statement really should be to ask the question, where are those errors? And in other cases, uh, some people may bring up specific passages. Maybe they see them um, on social media or something. That's usually the case, right? They'll see like a meme of, of some problem passage and they claim that there's a, a false statement and, in those cases, it is really important that we look at the biblical text itself and we look at it very closely. If we believe that the Bible is indeed inerrant, then we should be eager and certainly not afraid to inspect these texts in very, very clear detail to see what they actually say. And in some passages, just reading the text in English may not be of immediate help. And at that point, it is helpful to consult some commentaries on the text. I know that uh, Augustine and John Calvin and even some more recent uh, commentators have taken time to deal with some of these alleged problem texts and have given us very clear uh, solutions to understanding them. And finally, sometimes a historical perspective on this question is helpful. We really need to understand that there are no new problems in Scripture. Because the Bible in its entirety is over 1,900 years old, and all of these problem texts have always been there from the very beginning. Nothing's been added, right? But the church throughout history has been very firm on the belief of inerrancy in the sense that we have defined it here. And even since that time, hundreds of years of very highly competent Bible scholars have read and studied these texts and have found no issue holding to inerrancy. So this should give us complete confidence that the solutions to these problems are available and that the belief in inerrancy is entirely consistent with a lifetime of detail attention to the text of Scripture. Now that we've finished with all of the objections to the idea of inerrancy, 
In this chapter, Grudem goes into some specific examples of specific texts that have been deemed difficult in the past. Now, I don't think that for the sake of time and explanation that it's really a wise thing for me to go over each of them individually. Now, I say that because I think that if you were to read the chapter, really a word-by-word explanation that Grudem uses is super helpful and important. Uh, The idea here isn't for this to be like an audio book of it, because you could just, you can get that on Audible, and I think that many of you are probably doing that. But I am going to make mention of those texts here, and if you do want our group to discuss a specific one, you can always send us an email, and we'll keep that as an idea, as we're going to like every so often try to do kind of a roundtable and answer some submitted questions, okay? So I am going to list them out here because I don't want it to seem like we're just trying to intentionally skip over anything. I just want you to know up front that I'm not going to go into incredible detail about any of them. And the first one is the order of Jesus's temptations, which we would see in Matthew chapter four, verses three through eight. And then when you compare that with Luke chapter four, verses three through nine, so that's the first one they have labeled as kind of a difficult text, and there is an explanation there. Uh, The other one is in the book of Acts, and this is kind of the order of Thutis and Judas. We see this in Acts chapter 5, verse 34 to 39, and that one has a nice explanation in systematic theology. And then the last one that is detailed is about the idea of take sandals and a staff or don't take sandals and a staff. And those scripture references can be found in Matthew chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. Also in Mark chapter 6, verses 8 and 9. And also in Luke chapter 9, verse 3. And then again, if you have specific questions about any of those particular passages after reading them on your own and uh, reading what Grudem has to say, like I said, send us an email and we might be able to address those specifically in a different episode. The last topic we are going to discuss here are the problems with denying inerrancy. And these problems are not insignificant. And when we understand the magnitude of them, it gives us further encouragement to not only affirm inerrancy, but also to affirm its importance for the entire church. So we're going to talk through four problems with denying inerrancy. Number one, if we deny inerrancy, a serious moral problem confronts us. May we imitate God and also intentionally lie in small matters also? So 
Ephesians chapter five, verse one tells us to be imitators of God, but a denial of inerrancy claims that the words of scripture are God breathed and that God intentionally spoke falsely to us in some of the less central affirmations of scripture. But if this is right for God to do, how can it be wrong for us to do? Hopefully you guys see that how that becomes just an extremely slippery slope. Problem number two, if inerrancy is denied, we begin to wonder if we can really trust in anything that God says. So once we convince ourselves that God has spoken to us falsely in some very minor things, then we realize that he's capable of speaking falsely just in general, right? So what we're going to begin to do initially is to disobey those sections that we wish to not obey and to distrust those sections that we are least inclined to trust. But eventually that's just going to increase and that is going to be a great detriment to our spiritual lives. Reason number three is that if we deny inerrancy, we essentially make our own human minds a higher standard of truth than God's word itself. So this is basically us just saying that we know truth more certainly and more accurately than God's word does right? Or than God does in those specific areas. And if we do this, making our own minds to be a higher standard of truth than God's words, like that's actually just the root of all intellectual sin, right? That's putting ourselves above God. And then number four, lastly, if we deny inerrancy, then we must also see that the Bible is wrong not only in minor details, but also in some of its doctrines as well. So if we deny inerrancy, it means that we're saying that the Bible's teachings about the nature of Scripture and about the truthfulness and reliability of God's words is also false. And hopefully you see that those are not minor details, but that's a major doctrinal concern. If we have to try to get over the idea that Scripture says God's words are pure and that he never lies, and then we're affirming that the words are not pure and that God does lie, that's not a minor thing. That brings up just major issues here, right? Okay, so that is going to bring us to the end of chapter five for systematic theology dealing with the inerrancy of scripture. I want to thank you guys very much for listening and following along with us. I hope that this has been informational for you and uh, will be fruitful in your study. And we really look forward to having you guys join us 
in our next episode of the Kohalet podcast. So thank you guys very much for listening and God bless. Thank you.